0: This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Alert and oriented. Episode 25. I'm Megan. I'm back here with Nick and Dr. Abrams, and we have two awesome discussions joining us today.
0: So super excited. Thanks, Megan, for getting this 25th episode underway. I have a really interesting case here. Before we talk about the case, just generally, we can reintroduce ourselves and then have some, have our discussions, Hannah and Kat introduce themselves as well. So I've introduced myself many times here, Nick, but basically this summer I've, I've been in Montana a lot. So it's been about a month since I've been on clinical service. This is the first time I've really talked out loud about medicine in that month. So just getting back into it, but really excited about this case. And yeah, I guess Hannah, you can go ahead and introduce yourself and then Kat.
2: Sure. My name is Hannah. I am from the Chicagoland area, born and raised. Went to the University of Michigan for undergrad, and then worked for a little bit, and then came to medical school. And I am going. I'm actually dual applying into med and peds with the hopes of staying in the Chicagoland geographic area.
0: What have you been up to the last month, Hannah?
2: So I basically did a mini peds residency and was on peds for like five months straight, and then have taken. I took a two week break, and now I'm on radiology, which I've got to say is pretty great. I work half days. And then I come home and try new recipes. So yeah, I got steak marinating and potatoes cut for after this episode.
0: <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on radiology next, so I'll definitely have some questions for you there.
2: <laughs> I will also be on it next month, so I will see you
3: there.
0: <laughs> All right, neat. All right, and then Kat.
3: Yeah, hi everyone. My name is Kat. I am also a student here at Rush. I am born and raised in California. Born in a very small town in Northern California and then went to UC San Diego for undergrad. I also took a couple of years off before med school and worked a couple of different odd jobs and then joined med school. I'm applying into emergency medicine. And let's see, what have I been up to lately? I have been doing my IM sub I on Atra. So one more day, and then I am done with all my requirements for the year. And I get to go to the fun part of the year. That is fourth year.
0: <laughs> and then we have Dr. Abrams here with us. Pleasure as always. So thanks for being here, Dr. Abrams. You haven't anything <laughs> You want to throw in before you get started? I don't know. I, I I'm jealous that
4: you were in Montana for for most of the summer. Where were you? Somewhere good? Where in Montana? It's northwest. So
0: it's in the Kalispell area. It's the lakeside. Sure. So down Kal- by Glacier part. Yeah, that, my Glacier. Yeah, we're about forty five minutes from Glacier, so I can't complain. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful up there. One of one of the most beautiful places in the country. I think I hundred percent agree.
2: Does it look anything like the show Yellowstone?
0: It actually looks better than the show Yellowstone. Yeah.
2: I, I don't blame it. <laughs> That's crazy. That's so fun. What a great summer.
0: Yeah. All right. So we will get into this. So this is an interesting case that, was, that we found from Cook County Hospital. This was a patient that presented to the emergency room. So really interesting. And when I first heard about it, I didn't actually, wasn't involved in the care of this patient myself, but one of my classmates was. And when I first heard about it, I was like, oh this would really be a good podcast case. So I'm excited to see how it plays out. So I guess with that, we can get, on, get into the first aliphoat. So we're going to start out with just a little bit of history of present illness for this patient. So our patient today is a 47-year-old male who presents to the emergency department with a few days of generalized abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Yesterday, he developed right-sided flank pain, which has been progressively worsening since onset and is now excruciating constant 10 out of 10 in severity. He has had multiple episodes of vomiting, which is non bloody and non bilious. The patient denies any associated testicular pain, dysuria, hematuria, urinary retention, but he does report that he is urinating less than usual. There's no chest pain, but he does subjectively report that he's having some difficulty breathing. To our knowledge, no recent illnesses. He denies fever, cough, sore throat, and any history of similar symptoms. So, kind of a, a lot to unpack here, but we have this kind of, we have this male who's. Had this recent, what seems like GI illness, and now he's developing these pretty severe symptoms. So how would you, one of you, how would you guys approach a patient that would come to an ER with a presentation like this?
2: I can start, even though we have our resident ER in here. <laughs> yeah, that's our ED resident. I think just given the kind of really broad description of his issues, I would need a little bit more of a thorough history. So I would want to know, like, around what time did the abdominal pain start? When did you first notice it? What were you doing? a little bit more of like a description of the pain, trying to differentiate if this is like a musculoskeletal pain versus more of like a colonic type pain or epigastric type pain. And then sort of get a more thorough history as well in terms of, you know, when did the nausea start? When did the vomiting start? Was the diarrhea concurrent? You know, is diarrhea watery? Because I think my brain's going a bunch of different directions right now. I think with like all of these different kind of symptoms together, I think infectious at first. And so when I think infectious, I think I need a lot more information in terms of, you know, where you've been, et cetera.
3: I think That was great. So, yeah, I have to let the resident pedi- pediatrician go first because she's going to get the extra history that I would have skipped. But <laughs> going with like this history that it's like worsening and then now excruciating makes me think of some sort of like obstructive pathology. Something that was worsening, like appendicitis, some sort of torsion, mesoteric ischemia, something like that, that would all of a sudden get a lot worse. It will kind of have that initial prodrome.
1: Awesome discussion. I think you guys brought up a lot of good points. And I think this is one of the really hard parts about emergency medicine is someone coming in with a presentation like this and... With every question you're asking you're kind of asking it for a reason you want to be able to narrow down that differential and that gets difficult when the differential is so broad to start but i think you guys did a really good job discussing kind of infectious versus obstructive all different etiologies it could be so we'll move on and give you a little bit more information all right so here we have our second aliquot past medical history type 2 diabetes hypertension hyperlipidemia medications he's on insulin amtriptyline atorvastatin chlorpromazine Corthalidone, enalapril, linagliptin, metformin, and pantoprazole. Past surgical history, he had an above-the-knee amputation uncomplicated three months ago. No allergies and family and social history, is not a smoker, does not use any substances, and otherwise non-contributory. Anything stick out to you here in terms of the medical history meds, anything you're looking for in particular when trying to make some moves forward with
3: this case? The above-knee amputation, is that on the same side as the pain now?
0: Actually unsure if unsure if it's on the same side, but we, yeah, we just know one one on the amputation. I think it was right sided flank pain. Yeah, <laughs> I'm
3: pretty close by as far as it was pretty recent surgery, so that sticks out. I also think his I was kind of going two ways. He's on
2: a lot of diabetic medication, which can cause really bizarre GI symptoms, and then the diabetes plus the hyperlipidemia. I always think of like something to do with like pancreatitis. You know like the more obscure rare causes of pancreatitis but again i would need like a little bit more information as to like descriptions of his pain or a physical exam which i'm sure is aliquot three
0: <laughs> maybe yeah the the just to clarify also this so the knee amputation we know was due to complications with diabetes okay. and then also yeah i like how you point out just like a whole slew of medications here and then you mentioned like pancreatitis as a side effect of some of the medications and so just like kind of thinking about that obviously hard to tie anything together now, but just things, things we keep in mind. But clearly with, with this you know, amputation and the history of diabetes and also hypertension, hyperlipidemia, even though he's relatively young, you know, 47, not middle-aged, the risk factors can kind of open the door to a lot more, a lot more serious things. So yeah, anything no, else? No. Yeah. I, I want to say I, I
4: agree with you on this and I, you know, obviously we don't see the patient, but I, I, I do whenever I hear a case, I, I do try to imagine what it's what 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 the person might be like, and so obviously one of the things that you guys already pointed out is this person has long stand. I mean, as you presented. It, I said, "Oh, this person has long standing diabetes," and then you think about how long it, it has to take before you start getting symptoms that this person has. You think about what other things, like you guys already said, what does it put this person at risk of, and then can I go back to aliquat one? and think about what were the things on aliquot one that really sort of stand out to me and how would these diagnoses feed back to that? I, I mean, I didn't say anything in the first aliquot, but I mean, at least some of the person's symptoms were in my mind, nonspecific. The thing that the big piece of signal that really sort of stood out to me was this sort of 10 out of 10 excruciating flank pain. And, and, and what does that mean? And you guys have already mentioned certain things already. You mentioned pancreatitis, And I think about other things that would cause really excruciating pain like that.
2: I mean, I like kidney stones, even DKA, I think sometimes can be painful, although he didn't have any symptoms of confusion, which I, at least in the cases I've seen, they're always altered in some way, shape or form. But then again, we don't know his baseline. So maybe he is altered. And then like other microvascular complications that you can see from diabetes also, I think can absolutely present in the kidney area. So I would definitely add those to sort of our differential in terms of what we're thinking about
0: that's great. Yeah, definitely important. I think with the, just the severity of the pain, I guess, that, that's something that definitely, that definitely stands out. And, and kind of Hannah mentioning some of the differential there, like 10 out of 10 pain in the flank, like obviously you have to think about kidney stones and then, and then DKA, given the kind of prodrome of you know nausea, abdominal symptoms in this diabetic who, I, you know, you could maybe assume that it's not well controlled with a knee amputation, although we'll have to learn more. So I think the exam is going to be really important for us kind of say like, hey, what does this patient look like? Like what's going on when we walk into the room? So I guess on that note, we can reveal the exam. So I think this is a interesting exam here. So the temperature, the patient's afebrile, heart rate 84, the blood pressure is 225 over 98, oxygen saturation 97% on room air, and the respiratory rate is 35. The patient was alert and appeared in significant distress, diaphoretic, riding around in the bed, keeps screaming, my side, my side. The skin's warm and intact. There's no appreciable rashes. We said he was diaphoretic. H e n t exam unremarkable. Cardiovascular, there was a regular rate in rhythm, no murmurs, normal peripheral perfusion, no edema, and there were two plus femoral pulses bilaterally. Respiratory rate, tachypnic to the high 30s, low 40s, notably. The lungs are clear to oscillation breast sounds were equal, no tender, no tenderness on the chest wall. There's bilateral flank tenderness, no appreciable musculoskeletal tenderness. We had that left AKA. Gastrointestinal, soft, non-tender, non-distended, no pulsatile abdominal mass, and neurologic exam was normal with no focal deficits. The team decided to, to order a bedside ultrasound pretty emergently on this patient given the presentation. So that's also kind of something we'll talk about. But yeah, basically lots to unpack here with the vitals the exam. What what are kind of your, your guys' first impressions for, from this exam, what stands out to you?
3: I think right off the bat, the blood pressure stands out a lot, so that kind of leads me towards like a hypertensive emergency. given his exam as well. Um, so breaking that down as far as like his end organs that you would be concerned about would be like brain, heart, lungs, kidneys. I think we already have a pretty good picture towards maybe the kidneys. and I you know I rotated at county as well, so county county loves to go grab the ultrasound as soon as. As soon as someone walks in with a blood pressure like this. So I'm not surprised. But you can actually like roll out a couple things for hypertensive emergency with the ultrasound really quick. So like for pulmonary, you can look for pulmonary edema. You can look for the lines if you put the ultrasound on their lungs. Although this guy, I mean, he's too kidney, but his, I would expect his lungs would be normal. And then you can also look at the kidneys really quick with a bedside ultrasound and look and see if there's any fluid around the kidneys. I think Kat really hit the nail on the head there
2: in terms of the ultrasound. Generally speaking, about like this physical exam, really frustrating. There's no GI findings. <laughs> Just given all this GI symptoms. But you know, nausea and vomiting are really common when you're in pain as a side effect of pain. I think, you know, I think when I'm thinking like flank tenderness, you know, I kind of go through like organ systems. And so I think on an ultrasound, I would also check like the bladder and the like ureters and assess for, I don't want I know you can see like obstruction, but like a stone is more poignantly detected on a, like an x-ray where it will really light up if it's calcified in nature. And other than that, like I think you can also like assess the appendix. I mean, he's 47 years old. It would be, he could have like a fecalith causing appendicitis, but the only other thing I can really think of is like diverticulitis. But again, I would expect that more on like left-sided pain, maybe radiate into the flank region. So that's those are the things that I would add to sort of like what we were ass- what we were assessed for.
0: I, I think you actually made a, a good point regarding the ab- abdominal exam. I know mean, you said you were frustrated that there's no like findings that scream out to you, but we like to talk about pertinent negatives and like sometimes when something's absent on the exam, we can kind of help shape our differential a little bit. So does the fact that, you know, pressing on the, ab- the abdomen is soft and kind of pressing on, it doesn't really elicit any pain. Does that um, help maybe roll some things out or at least point away from certain diagnoses?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I had mentioned pancreatitis before. I would drop that definitely lower on my differential at this point, given that I would expect the patient to scream out in pain if I pressed in their uh, at the gastric region. Also makes appendicitis a little bit less likely, just given again, there are pretty specific exam maneuvers that you can do to sort of rule in or rule out appendicitis. I actually don't know the like the likelihood ratio on those off the top of my head, but I know that those are we use those quite frequently when sort of creating a differential for abdominal pain.
4: So let me ask you guys a question because I like to start with that with the very first line, not aliquot three, but the vital signs. And so the vital signs here, in some ways, they are at least what I, what I might have expected a little strange. And I was wondering if you, what, what you guys think about think about that. I mean, one of the things that stands out to me right away is you know that. The, the heart rate is low for that blood pressure in some ways, although there's ways to connect that. The fact that this person's afebrile may be helpful in some ways, may not be. And then the respiratory rate of 35, you know, which is then sort of repeated as 40s down down below really does stand out and makes me think a little bit about, you know, is there a way to sort of fit these vital signs into, into this whole picture?
2: I think that's really interesting because I also put a question mark next next to diaphoretic when he's afebrile. So like, why is he sweating, but he doesn't have a fever, which obviously you can be uncomfortable and in pain and be like moving around so much, I guess that you're sweating, but I wouldn't expect somebody to be diaphoretic, which is, you know, we can see that they're sweating and be totally afebrile, normal heart rate. The really only pertinent sign is that like, he's still hypertensive with a little bit of increased respiratory rate. I, I don't, I didn't know what to make of it, which is probably why I didn't address it. Yeah.
1: I think when I saw these vitals too, I was a little bit confused. I think this is someone I would go back and double check and make sure that his heart rate truly is 84 because you would definitely expect someone who seems as uncomfortable as he is and has a blood pressure of 225 over 98 if you're going to attribute this to him being like in distress and uncomfortable, you'd expect the heart rate to be a little bit higher. So you can go back and look at the meds, make sure he's not beta blocked not on a calcium channel blocker. I've seen that happen often. And then I feel like another thing I'd always think that's like, okay, is there some sort of like cardiac, some sort of cardiac, cardiac process that's affecting the conduction system? Like he's diaphoretic, his blood pressure is high, could be he's in pain. And now he just has an issue with his conduction system that's not allowing him to become as tachycardic as he should be. But yeah, I agree that definitely stuck out to me too. What do you think about the tachypnea, assuming that you know, this is a good lung exam and we don't hear anything? What else would be on your differential for someone who appears to be
2: you know, breathing pretty hard, but maybe we don't think the pathology is in the lungs? I mean, initially when I saw it, before we went through the rest of the exam, I thought this fits really well with DKA <laughs> because I would expect it to be a compensatory response. Other than that, I mean, given the lack of lung findings, I mean, it could just be a response to pain. You know, people tend to alter their breathing when they're in pain to... Sort of compensate for where they're feeling their pain. So maybe taking normal breaths or taking deep breaths moves his body in a way that exacerbates the right flank pain. So it could be that the short, short, rapid breaths are what make him comfortable and he's just compensating.
1: Yeah. yeah, I love that
2: point. I think it's always important
1: to think about, okay, why is the patient, you know, coming in with the vital sign they're having like the blood pressure? Is this pain related? The ticket, I feel like obviously you want to think about the lungs first. Is there something going on there where they're not oxygenating? Well, in this case with O2, that's 97%. So you always want to think about other things outside of the lungs that can cause you to become to compensating for an acidosis is yeah, a really good thing to think about when you see a patient that's breathing this quickly. So I think the question then always becomes like, all right, sick, not sick. Are we worried? Not worried. How are we prioritizing our workup
3: versus our management? What would you guys be doing first? I think this is definitely a sick patient. This is going to suddenly get all your attention if this rolls in. I think as far as management, I would start with the bedside ultrasound, see what that shows just because that's the fastest and things that we'd concerned about that are surgical emergencies. You can get a, get a pretty quick answer on those. Hannah, do you want to order anything? i get a UA and then
2: I would also probably do more like KUB. I'd probably get some labs too, just because we really don't know what's going on. So I do... CBC with discs, CMP, maybe like a CRP, see if there's some sort of inflammatory causes, ESR, in terms of other imaging. I'd probably start there. Maybe an abdominal x-ray. It's fast. It's easy. It's cheap.
4: Hey, Kat, as as the the soon-to-be ER doctor, I I have a question that has bothered me since I saw this case. (laughs) Flank pain, but, you know, if, you know, flank back, who knows, but, you know, Again this is a diabetic with a lot of risk factors and if this person said they c- came in with tearing back pain and 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 was almost the exact same presentation there's there's this piece that keeps running through my mind that you know this person is is clearly has to be a vasculopath right because he's already lost a leg and things like that and, and there's one diagnosis that seems to be sitting in here that at least I Think about a little bit, and I, I'd assume as an as a ER doc, you would think about also.
3: Yeah, I, I think you're trying to trying to lead us to the dissection here, <laughs> which no, I, I would agree. I would agree with. I th- I think our our ultrasound that would that's part of the fast exam.
4: So that was my question to you: is, is 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 point of care ultrasound is that is that good for this diagnosis? I I don't know.
3: From my understanding, a lot of the studies on ultrasound all have to do with. Who's doing the ultrasound? So it depends how confident you are in your ultrasound abilities and whether you're getting good images. Our residents at County have great ultrasound training though. So I would trust them to get a good abdominal aorta.
4: And, and I say this, say this saying the exam really is not compatible with that because I mean somebody went out of their way to tell us that everything's fine distally, mm-hmm. but it's still, you know, when I first turned when, when the case was first presented i say ah that has to be you know you think about what do i have to find right away that's going to kill this person immediately and that would be one of those diagnoses
0: yeah and uh, yeah you're exactly right dr everes that's what they were were worried about the most at first just kind of on on the eye test is like is this person dissecting especially with this blood pressure and so they were they they went ahead with a little imaging which we'll we'll get into a little bit later but it's kind of hard you know the te- the back pains kind of like in the flank but you know, it, who knows? Like, you don't want to miss something, if, even though it's not like classically that upper back. If you're thinking about thoracic aorta, but that's 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 what they were they were definitely most most worried about initially.
2: I think also in the first Aliquot it talks about how it was like progressive over a couple of days, which at least like in our learning, I more think of like, you know, triple A as or even dissection like a little bit more immediate. Like, I feel like if it was over a couple of days. They might not present living, but I'm, yeah, I don't know how embarrassed I should be that we didn't put that down. <laughs>
4: You shouldn't be embarrassed, oh, wow. <laughs> if, we, if we had Kevin here, you know, Kevin, one of Kevin's favorite things to always say is that tempo is everything, <laughs> so, so you, but you're, you're right, Hannah. It's not, the tempo is not really right for it.
2: Yeah. Well, we would check with our really
1: great imaging skills. I think you guys did a great job discussing all of this. I think we're ready to move on to the next what do you think,
0: Nick? I think that's a great idea. Let's see what we got.
1: Okay. So we have some labs and a couple or a little bit of imaging. So start the CBC white blood cell count is 23, hemoglobin 12.6, platelets 407. For the CMP, we have a sodium of 136, potassium 6.1, chloride 88, bicarb of 2, BUN 82, creatinine of 13.7 with an unknown baseline glucose 112, anion gap 46. And we got a bedside ultrasound, which showed no free fluid and no triple A. And we got a UA, which showed two plus protein and no red blood cells, no white blood cells, no ketones. And they got blood and urine and sputum cultures, which are all pending. So we love some good lab abnormalities and we got some good ones here. Why don't you start us off and tell us kind of what's most striking to you and how this changes while you're thinking. I'm still processing them one minute. Take <laughs> <laughs> time.
0: Sometimes labs are disappointing. <laughs> And sometimes they're really juicy, mm-hmm. and they have a lot to to tell you. And I feel like this definitely will side on the on the, a lot to tell you in terms yep. of start, start lab abnormalities for sure. And I guess there's no wrong answer as to which one you want to pick. But
2: I mean, I really, where do we start? Okay, we'll start from the top. So in terms of the CBC, he's elevated. He's leukocytosis, an elevated white blood cell count. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure those platelets are elevated. This is me double checking. They are. Slightly. Upper okay, limit's like that's like 400. So. And then in terms of his CMP, sodium's within normal limits. He has a hyperkalemia. His chloride is within normal. Oh, it's actually a little bit low for normal limits, but kind of borderline bicarb. I don't remember what's normal. <laughs> and then his, this is kind of where it gets interesting. So his BUN's really high, his is really high. His glucose is, I would call that pre-normal. and his anion gap is
0: high. And I know it's kind of a, well, this is not, well, usually we'll have like some, some like parameters, but so for our, our bicarb just, it will, it's two here. And normally we're like, it's like in the 20s be like a okay. an bicarb. And then, yeah, you mentioned the, you, you mentioned the creatinine.
2: Yeah. The creatinine.
0: We right. get in an, the anion gap as well.
2: Yeah. So just with what I have right now, this is, you know, obviously getting very confusing because when I see things like this, I'm like, oh, he's a diabetic and he has, you know, a really high anion gap and his kidneys are clearly malfunctioning. But then we go back to this presentation and physical exam and it's like not all quite fitting together, which is always fun when you're on service and you have this conundrum. I, it's so, I'm trying to think of like what I would do next. I'd probably get this man some fluids.
0: (laughs) And-
2: And also assess his address his potassium levels because those to me are kind of what I can correct most immediately. And then I would put my head together with my lovely ED resident and figure out what to do next.
3: I, I gotta say, you know, at county sometimes we get get a lot of patients who just don't have good access to medical care. So sometimes you have to look at their labs with a grain of salt and try and figure out. Like, is this where they live on a daily basis or is this really bad for them? So, you know, 40, 50 year old that has poorly controlled diabetes coming in with a creatinine of 13, I might not get too excited about. But given his presentation, writhing around in pain, I think this is probably not where he lives at. I think this is, you know, an acute, some sort of acute renal pathology is going on at this point. And then that combined with his potassium that po- all points to his kidneys aren't able to excrete the potassium like they should be. But the glucose, I agree, is pretty interesting. I, w- I was going to expect that that was going to be probably around like the 300s or so, given everything else going on.
0: And yeah, I think you made a good point, which I guess we should clarify in terms of the creatinine. So like, this is not like a dialysis patient. So we we don't have a baseline creatinine on him, but um, he like doesn't have any like marked kidney failure at baseline that we know of. So assuming the baseline would be somewhere down in in the ones or two, we don't, we're not exactly sure, but not like a, not like a dialysis patient in this case. So we definitely know like his, his, there's something severely wrong with the kidneys. And then also, I think you mentioned a really good point and like, or Hannah in that, like a lot of, a lot of the presentation in some of the labs kind of point towards dk given the history but then we have glucose that's 112 so it it is kind of like a little confusing picture and then i guess another question i ask is the white blood cell count is 23 given like there's no fever but there's this kind of would you guys make much of that or
2: given his history which seems pretty non-contributory other than i think he type 2 diabetes hypertension hyperlipidemia like he doesn't seem to be Immunocompromised in any way, where like maybe we wouldn't get a fever, but we would have an elevated white blood cell count. I would say it's not my biggest concern right now.
0: Okay. Yeah, kind of a tough one. Like, is it significant or not? I think I agree with you. It's yeah, something.
2: It doesn't seem infectious in nature to me at this point, given the other lab findings and his physical exam. You know, watch may be wrong, but at this point, no. I think the white blood cell count. I'm not. It's not my biggest concern. Yeah, I think that's a good point too, because I think,
1: especially in the ED, one of the things we always want to think about is infection. If you think just like about the Sears criteria, which people use often to figure out if we think there's an infection going on, like technically he meets Sears criteria with his respiratory rate and then with his white blood cell count. And so then we'd kind of look for evidence of end organ dysfunction. He's not hypotensive, he's hypertensive, but sometimes those patients can kind of change acutely. So I think it's always really interesting to uh, take the time to not just like, okay, check all the boxes, like, yes, yeah, Sears, antibiotics, like really take a step back and think like, okay, but do we actually think this patient's infected? Where do we think the infection might be? Or is this someone that we can kind of hold off on antibiotics and maybe, you know, either add them later, or if we think we need to start them now, then we can always take them off later. So do you have a framework for assuming this is either like an acute kidney injury or acute on slightly chronic kidney injury? What would be your framework for kind of thinking this through?
4: Hey, Megan, can I ask these guys a question before, before you go that was maybe it'll help frame this a little bit. And that is, again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of abnormal labs that are here, but some are more abnormal than others. And so, again, as as you're trying to, I don't want to say there's a lot of signal here, but but the, the biggest signals, so the, you know, I thought the biggest signal in the history was the pain, but what do you guys think is the biggest signal in the labs? Or let me ask you this question. You've seen a lot. Out of labs now, but are there any labs here that are just so out of, out of whatever of anything you've seen before?
3: I don't think I've ever seen a bicarb of two.
2: I'm tied between a couple. I totally agree on the bicarb. And then, I mean, his creatinine is really high. (laughs) I agree with you guys. I think those are probably the two
1: things that kind of stick out the most. So I guess breaking them down individually, so we have this presumed acidosis obviously you can't say it's an acidosis for sure without a blood gas right but we have a bicarb of two so this is most likely an acidosis the only alternative or the only other thought would be him compensating for like a chronic respiratory alkalosis and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense so we can assume this is probably an acidosis and then the question always becomes is a gap acidosis is a non-gap acidosis so we give you guys the gap here and then the other thing we have to figure out is with this new kidney function can this all be related do we think
2: it's separate what do you guys think So definitely a gap acidosis brings us back to our lovely mud piles as causes for, you know, gap acidosis, which also I think explains his tachypnea earlier on as well. So I think that's where we would probably go next is assessing whether one of our lovely mud piles, you know, contributes to his cause.
1: Yeah. I think that's great the way you tied it back to what we found in the physical exam. It's always nice when things can kind of makes sense. And we can put like a pretty bow on at least part of it. I think in this case with nothing in the lungs, he had a chest x-ray that looked okay, which we didn't mention here, but that was done. So yeah, it's nice to at least know that you have an explanation for why he's consistently breathing in the forties. What do you guys think about the kidney function? Would you kind of start with fluids, reassess, I don't know, automatically jump to dialysis? What are your guys' thoughts?
0: Or just to tag on another question, what, yeah, I guess what would be your thought process in thinking like, does this patient need dialysis or not? Or do we have enough information yet?
3: Another patient that had these labs, I might try and just like push fluids first, try a little insulin, see if we could bring it back down. I think in this patient that's already got a blood pressure of 200, you're not, you don't have a lot of wiggle room to push a lot of fluids. And so I think you're going to be, I think you should just set yourself up for dialysis yeah. earlier rather than later. His hypertension
2: also is extreme. That plus the hyperkalemia and like his just general symptoms, he's coming in, vomiting. I would definitely cons- like set up for dialysis.
0: Okay. And is there a specific like reason that we would, or something we would be trying to dialyze, I guess, or do we not know yet? That's kind of a hard question. Um, I don't think know. Think about that. like, indicate like reasons why we yeah. would dialysis. Um, yeah.
2: But- so, I mean, he could be uremic, but I don't, like there's no altered mental status, which you know can occur with uremia. I don't think he has DKA. I'm honestly just going through my mud piles right now. He, we would maybe have to reassess his medication use. Could have been using other forms of medication or substances, solstilates. You know, I don't think he was an isoniazide for any reason, but he could have been drinking a lot too in his past, you know, had either like used methanol or had a a lactic acidosis. So there's a, we don't have an answer yet as to why, but we know he needs to be dialyzed.
0: Yeah. So. I, you, when we think about like indications for dialysis, I know there's like the AEIOU. Hmm. You like pretty much mentioned all of them. So you meant, so for you, you mentioned like uremia and then you mentioned like different in- intoxications or alcohols, which would be the I, you mentioned electrolyte, acidosis is the A, and then you mentioned or uh, overload as well. So those are kind of the reasons. We don't exactly have enough information, but just wanted to go over those in terms of like where our thought process is for if we would dialyze this patient but so i guess megan we can move on to the next one unless yeah just to kind of give us a little bit more information here so aliquot five so we have some imaging so we have t-abdomen pelvis which despite the renal impairment was obtained emergently um, which didn't show any abnormality on chest abdomen or pelvis and there was notably no hydronephrosis so no evidence of dissection there and then there's a vbg which showed a pH of 6.774, CO2 of 21, a bicarb of 3, a lactate of 19, and a beta-hydroxybutyrate of 0.1, which is, we're saying normal. So given this VBG and imaging, we have a little bit more information here. Anything stand out to you guys?
3: He is he's very acidotic at
0: this point. Yes. And do we have an idea of what...
3: It's a metabolic acidosis.
0: Yes. And like, of, the, of like what could be like the acid? Lactic acid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the lactate of 19. Yes. Yeah. Great. So yeah, in terms of the answer for why the pH is 6.7, we can say, all right, this is most likely from the lactate. I'm in the ICU this month. And so there's a lot of acid-based stuff that we do. And one of the things that I learned is figuring out, you can have both like a med- or an anion gap and a non-ion gap non-anion gap metabolic acidosis at the same time. So we'll get something called the delta-delta, which is basically just like the ratio of the change in the anions over the change in bicarb. And so if you think of like a normal anion gap being 12, and this patient's was 46, then the change in the anion gap's 34. And then if you use 24 as the normal value for the bicarb, and you're actually supposed to take the bicarb from the BMP or the CMP, the one on the VBG is calculated, so it's not as accurate. So that'd be like 24 minus two, which is what we did in the BMP that's a change in 22. So you do 34 over 22, which is about 1.5. And so if it's between one and two, you can say this is like a pure anion gap acidosis. But if it's less than one, Um, That means that like your change in the anion gap is smaller than your change in bicarb. So there's going to be an additional non-anion gap acidosis going on versus if your change in anion gaps bigger than your change in bicarb, then there's an additional metabolic alkalosis going on. So that's my fun little ICU pearl that I learned this week. And then you always want to do, you want to check to see if like the compensation is appropriate, right? So this will be like winter's formula that we learned about a while ago. And I feel like I've learned 100 times and then forgot. So that's when you take 1.5 times the bicarb. So in this case, it'd be 1.5 times two, which is three. You add eight, so that's 11, and then you do plus or minus two. So between like nine and 13 is what you'd expect, like a compensated CO2 to be which I think is almost like impossible to breathe fast enough to get your CO2 down to like 9 to 13. This guy's already breathing at 40 per minute. So I can't imagine how long you'd be able to do that for before you just tire yourself out. So not surprising here that he's not fully fully compensated, just like given the degree of the acidosis. But yeah, just some calculations, I guess, you can use to (laughs) impress people around you when you're trying to figure out what's going on with the metabolic acidosis. All right, yeah. And then we have the CT, which doesn't really give us much of anything, but also... of helps us to rule some stuff out so what are you guys thinking in terms of what's going on do you want to like take a step back and just reframe and kind of go through what's at the top of your list in terms of differential and how you're gonna tie this all together
0: or yeah even if you don't have like a differential because it's really hard here it's just like what's i guess just like what's going on like what are the main things that are standing out to us at this point
2: yeah it's funny because i think so in general we have this 47 year old guy who has excruciating right flank pain, but and on exam is extremely hypertensive, but afebrile, and and then his labs are indicative of an elevated white blood cell count, elevated platelets, but really we're concerned about this really elevated creatinine and potassium, and so we ultimately decide to dialyze him. We have to sort of figure out the cause of his dial of the need for dialysis, and so in doing so, we get this VBG which confirms our metabolic acidosis due to lactic acid buildup, but then brings us back to our original question of sort of what's causing this lactic acid buildup. And it's funny, looking back at our differential diagnosis from the beginning before we had all this information, I don't think I'd keep anything on here (laughs) given that I don't think it's infectious in nature. You know, I don't think he has an obstruction. The DKA could have been on there, but we have a lot of things to help rule it out, including a lot of his lab work and specifically then the normal glucose. You know, I really don't think he has kidney stones or a triple A or back pain that's causing this. And so just kind of going back to this, what's causing this lactic acidosis, you know, it, my brain sort of goes to just given this guy's story where it was, you know, onset in the past three days, substance use, toxins. And then the only other thing I would maybe include on there is just given this elevated white blood cell count, but with like no fever, like HIV. I feel like you can kind of always have on this differential. So Anything to add, Cal?
3: Yeah, I wanted to ask, I'm, I'm forgetting now, but... Was there part of the history where he had like some prodrome? Yeah, so he had like a
1: no fevers, chills. He's just had a couple days of like a non-specific kind of diarrhea, vomiting, nausea,
3: GI Mm illness. And I agree with Hannah. I think she framed that really well. And then thinking of kind of these causes of it. Suddenly in a couple days, definitely things like drugs, toxins. I'd want to, this would be the point where I'd start taking a really close look at his um, med list, making sure that there's nothing that he could have accidentally taken too much of. And then, you know, going back and asking about drug use again, possibly just getting the UDS and going from there.
4: I just was going to ask, you know, first of all, probably it, when I think about the acidosis of this person, it is probably a mixed acidosis so the, because he is uremic at some level, as UNs, you know, as BUN's 87 is creatine, but this is still. Predominantly lactic acidosis. And I, I guess I'm just asking you guys when you think about lactic acidosis and what causes lactic acidosis, how you kind of organize that in your head or how you think about it. You know, I'll, I'll stop there. I, I, I could tell you how I do it, but that's, that's not really important.
2: I don't, I quite honestly don't have a great way to do it. The two ways I try and frame it are. Is it that there are certain areas of the body that aren't getting it, like muscle that's not getting enough oxygen versus sort of all of the other reasons that you might have lactic
4: acidosis? <laughs> way We do it the exact same way. That is kind of a... <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. So I feel like there can be overlap there. For example, like if you have sepsis, there's a lot of overlap there. But for the most part, I sort of go like, all right, does this guy have some like cardiac issue where you're not getting enough oxygen to an area that has a lot of musculature and so you're getting lactic acidosis or, you know, are you a marathon runner? versus sort of like what I more so think of like substances. So whether that be drugs, a lot of like cardiac drugs can cause lactic acidosis. Is it you know more so like a toxins perspective, like alcohol or like a predisposed condition, like diabetes? Awesome. Yeah. I think you did a great job breaking that down. And that's kind of just what the,
1: I don't know, kind of the way that it's broken down, I think for a lot of things you'll just read online. So there's like a type A and a type B lactic acidosis as the what they like to call it. So type A, you just think of it being tissue hypoxia versus type B is no tissue hypoxia. And so I think this kind of forces us to take a trip back to biochem. We won't go too in depth, but just thinking about what happens with glycolysis. So you break down glycogen into pyruvate and then pyruvate can then become lactate or it can enter the Krebs cycle. And so that becomes dependent on oxygen. So if you don't have oxygen, like in tissue hypoxia, you're not going to be able to enter the Krebs cycle and then it's going to become lactate or you can think of like all the other cofactors and things that are required for pyruvate to enter the Krebs cycle and go through it and so if there's anything that's like going to interfere with any of the cofactors or anything that's going to increase kind of like the concentration of pyruvate and then it can get shunted to lactate. And so this is where you think about like all the drugs and toxins and like thymine deficiency is a common thing that causes it. You guys mentioned a lot of the medications. Alcohol is like a great example because you end up with like all this NADH that can't be regenerated to NAD or I might be getting that wrong. It might be the other way around, but NAD is somehow involved. And so that's why you'll see alcoholics that have a lactic acidosis. So yeah, I think that's a really good way to break it down. And I think you brought up a good point too about sepsis is like the common thought was that it was just due to tissue hypoxia and you're not perfusing and that's why you have a lactate. But there's actually like evidence that just like all this increased sympathetic activity kind of ramps up your sympathetic nervous system and that interferes with your ability to like utilize pyruvate and have it enter the Krebs cycle. So it's not only tissue hypoxia, it's like also this kind of sympathetic storm that you can get sometimes. And then, yeah, just thinking about the liver too, because a lot of this happens in the liver. So if you have some sort of like underlying liver dysfunction you might not be able to generate or have pyruvate enter the Krebs cycle. You could generate lactate. And then just thinking about like the way lactate leaves the body. So if you have some issue with like your kidneys and you're not clearing lactate, obviously you need something to like make it become elevated in the first place, but it might seem more elevated than otherwise would be if you're not clearing it, like a person who like has that renal function. All right. Anything to add, Nick?
0: Um, No, I think you guys all covered it. I I think for me, another shocking thing is just the severity of it. I mean, 19. So like, like Hannah was saying, some 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 tissue could be dying. Like, and if it's nineteen, like, is that like on a large scale? So it's like a, you know, I think like the patient have a seizure, like some severe seizure that could just bring it up so high, or like, and you know, it's like the entire gut dying. So yeah, just I think the severity of it is just a little bit perplexing here. That's I guess the only thing that I would I would kind of add, but I think we already touched that. So the the only shocking thing that you guys really that Meg had just talked about is the Krebs cycle,
4: and you know, I really thought after this you know, whatever, the first two years of medical school, I would never have to either, either hear or think about the Krebs cycle again. And it was some kind of hazing ritual. But the, rea- the reality is, un- unfortunately, is that, or maybe, the, maybe it's a good thing, is that the Krebs cycle really, you know, it, it does come back at times. And, and this really is one of those places where, where the Krebs cycle really sort of takes on a meaning beyond something I had to memorize for step one. And it, like you said, that, you know the thiamine stuff, all that, all that stuff just sort of ties in so nicely to what we, you know, to what I learned now forty some years ago. But, but it really there, there is some importance to it, and I think certainly in the context of this case, it probably is is very meaningful.
0: Yeah, just add it. <laughs> adding on to that, I just in terms of the Krebs cycle, I just like this is a little offshoot, but I definitely have learned more about the Krebs cycle and in marathon training than I have in in step one studying because I know that when lactate builds up your legs really really hurt and so I'm trying to to prevent that so I like looked in you know you always got to know a little bit so that's that's my main knowledge of the Krebs cycle just looking that up but anyway sorry about the side note there just had to throw that in we'll move on to just like a little bit of just briefly kind of causes of metabolic acidosis even though we kind of mostly went over them so we'll we'll just go over them really briefly I know Hannah and, and Kat m- mentioned them, so. Megan, move on more.
1: Yeah. Real fast. I guess if you guys had a guess, if you think this is more of like a type A or a type B lactic acidosis, what do you think it is? Or is there any other workup you'd want to do to either like rule things in, rule things out?
0: A A being like there's and B and B being maybe like a, maybe like a toxin or something, something affecting cellular metabolism.
2: I think you could make good arguments for either. Um, I think we're probably, I mean, I don't want to speak for both of us, but I think we're probably both leaning more towards B. The thing that's kind of interesting that I just would point out is that creatinine can also come from muscle, and he had really elevated creatinine. So, it, you know, it does make me think a little bit like, oh, you know, there is some argument for type A, but given all the other information, I think we would say type B. Okay,
0: great. So we won't hammer this too hard, but just you kind of mentioned mud pile, Anna. And so, just in terms, so we know we have an anti and gap metabolic acidosis, there's lots of different causes so the key is you know once we found that what's causing it lots of uh, mnemonics online that you can find different ones but one that we like to use uh, is like a cat mud pile so you just spell out a cat mud pile and each letter starts for something different so go down the list aspirin then carbon monoxide cyanide caffeine acetaminophen theophylline for the m would be methanol or metformin breamia diabetic ketoacidosis propylene glycol And then I, isoniazid, ibuprofen, iron, L, lactic acidosis, and E, ethylene glycol. So we pretty much talked about most of these things in our discussion, but just wanted to go over that to kind of summarize some of the causes we've talked about. But um, all right, so we can move on. now.
1: Another interesting pearl I learned, if you do have a patient with an anion anion gap acidosis and you're not entirely sure where it's coming from, something else you can do is check the osmolar gap. So this is for a lot of the toxic alcohols. Basically, what it looks at is like what you'd expect your serum osmolality to be based on like the formula. And then you have a machine that actually calculates what the osmoles are in your blood. And so if you have ingested a lot of these toxic alcohols, they'll build up in your blood and you'll get a pretty big osmolar gap. And that can be a cause of like a significant metabolic acidosis. In this case, we don't have an osmolar gap, but just something to do in the future. If you have a patient that seems kind of complicated and you're not entirely sure, you know, where this gap is coming from. All right.
0: Or do you, you know, okay, no, we can move on this one. Megan, you can go ahead.
1: All right. So our next aliquot is just a little bit about what happened. So we got one liter of lactated ringers while in the ER, remained to Kipnik with a respiratory rate in the forties. Nephrology was consulted. Sodium bicarb was started. He was transferred to the ICU where decision to proceed with emergent hemodialysis was made resulting in gradual improvement of his condition. Blood, urine, and sputum cultures were obtained, all of which resulted negative. Nephrology and ICU team attributed renal injury to prerenal hypovolemia in the setting of recent diarrhea and vomiting and the acidosis to one of the patient's medications.
0: So, Megan, I guess while you flip back to the medications that the patient's taking, this is at least what the nephrology team had, had thought. But yeah, they dialyzed the patient. And so, in terms of the medications, you re mentioned like a toxic buildup. Is there anything that, that stands out? Do you guys?
3: You want to take it away, Kat? <laughs> you guys can say at the same time. The metformin.
0: Yeah. it's <laughs> a pretty
3: big dose too. A thousand twice a day is what he was taking. So that's a pretty good dose and that's easy to accidentally take too much of.
0: Yeah. And what specifically about the metformin would kind of tie into all of this?
2: You expand on your question a little bit.
0: So what can metformin do, I guess, that can cause what's happening here?
2: Oh, like uh, diarrhea? Yeah aspect it causes like abdominal discomfort
0: yeah in terms of like what's what's caught in terms of like a, i say you guys basically have like n- you guys have nailed everything i'm just trying to like frame the question without giving it all away i
3: don't I, I think i know what you're getting at but i'm not sure that i understand why or how it works but i know that there's something like metformin associated lactic acidosis
0: there it is yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah
3: i don't know why that happens though so don't ask
0: me to <laughs> no that's not what we were expecting but yeah so Overall, interesting case that I, you know, always read about metformin-associated lactic acidosis. We know we hold the, these diabetic medications when, for hospitalized patients, but just to see to see or learn about a case like this was kind of an interesting perspective. Doctor Abrams, do you have any thoughts here?
4: I, I yeah, I do. Have, I've got lots of thoughts
0: on this. I, I can tell. I can tell you're you're just licking your chops there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know,
4: again, you guys. So we use metformin a lot obviously. And and then there's times when we so we use metformin for people with with diabetes and we we start cutting back on metformin on people with diabetes when when certain things occur to them. And and again it goes back to the fact that this guy was a long-standing diabetic and
0: and Nick do you have any idea what his baseline creatinine was? I don't. I I, I mean, I'm assuming he had one because he's on the metformin. But Megan and I just said that it it was not severe enough to to not have him be on the medication. So, may, so maybe something may, put him in the stage stage three category. Yeah, may, maybe, but we don't, we
4: don't know. know. Yeah, because exactly. because he has diabetic vascular disease, and so I, I wonder if he has does. You know, he had some level of diabetic kidney disease, and and you guys are going to I assume. Tell us a little bit about this, and that's sort of the mechanism of how metformin causes lactic acidosis, which which is probably more complicated than we think i I, I do go back and, and and still wonder about you know why why he had such bad flank pain, and I'm so interested in what the nephrologist said was this all that they thought that he that he was this sort of renal micro ischemia and microinfarction that they think cause this severe pain or or maybe it's just if you have a bicarb of two you just every ounce of like you said when you have lactic acidosis running your legs hurt maybe when you have a, you know when you have severe lactic acidosis and a bicarb of two your kidneys must ache a whole lot
0: trying to deal with this. I I, I don't know. Yeah that's a good question. I I didn't talk to the nephrologist and There really wasn't much explanation for the pain. I know Megan was asking me this before too, like, but doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense or like what's causing such severe pain? But there's a couple of case reports online that seem to to describe a presentation with flank pain that was maybe just associated with just this damage, severe damage to the kidneys, maybe microvascular, we don't know. But there's not really a pleasing answer to that question. You know, usually
4: we say, you know, it's the history and physical which it is sort of in this case that leads us to the diagnosis but sometimes it's the labs that lead us to the diagnosis and i think in this case it, it really in many ways sort of what was the labs knowing sort of the history of this person's this person's medication so you know you know history i say is 90% of the game or you know 80%. percent there's been studies over the years that have done that but you know in this case i it really is the labs that that sort of push you to to what what you guys are going to tell us a little bit about this diagnosis in in, in a few minutes i i you know there's one thing I, I feel obliged when we talk about lactic acidosis to talk about the Warburg effect You uh, your smile I see you, Nick here, you're smiling, you know what that is no I'm actually just I'm like that off, right, right? That's, the it, right that, that's, that's the cancer cell piece and so you know that it was at least part of the differential diagnosis at at one point, and that is you know so. People who have certain types of cancer can develop lactic acidosis because of this so-called so-called Warburg effect, which is, you know, I guess cancer cells, you know, do a different kind of glycolysis and 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 they shunt things down the the lactic acid pathway. Not certainly not in this case, but I, I, I always feel, you know, no discussion of lactic acidosis should be without at least mentioning the Warburg effect and Could this guy have had sort of an occult cancer that was causing this? But I think you you pretty much have it nailed down, and that, you know, what you have there.
1: Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason this is such a difficult diagnosis to make. So, our last aliquot here was just that we got a metformin blood level, which was greater than five, the therapeutic range being between one and two. So this essentially at least tells you that some part of this lactic acidosis is from metformin. It's always hard to say if this is like 100% what's going on. A lot of times they just call it like a metformin associated lactic acidosis because theoretically you have to exclude every other single cause of lactic acidosis to say this is all from the metformin, and that can be, you know, very challenging to do because you don't know if there's like, you know, some episode of like hypotension or something before that caused lactate to build up and now he's just not clearing it. So it is a challenging diagnosis. There's like been a lot of controversy as to whether or not this actually exists. And I think people are kind of agreeing more that it does exist. I can contribute to lactic acidosis, but there's been far less case studies that have shown like an only like metformin-induced lactic acidosis in the absence of anything else that would cause it. So we got a couple of teaching points here, but just to kind of tie everything together. So the thought was that he had this GI illness with like this vomiting and diarrhea during which he like became hypovolemic in a patient that probably already has some underlying kidney dysfunction. He wasn't perfusing his kidney kidney well maybe became a little bit ischemic, like some microvascular ischemia, like you were talking about. He ended up building up the metformin and ultimately ended up with a metformin lactic acidosis. So hard to say exactly what happened, but I think that's the best guess that we have. So we'll move forward to some of the teaching points. So metformin is in the class of biguanide medications. And so it inhibits hepatic gluconeogenesis and it opposes the action of glucagon. And so it kind of does this within the mitochondria. And so it like blocks the mitochondrial transport chain, which basically can poison the mitochondria. So that's the mechanism by which it causes an increase in lactate, but also like increases insulin sensitivity. So that's why it's such a helpful medicine for diabetics. But in addition to doing that, it can cause this lactic acidosis. And so you end up not being able to regenerate any D plus, which is needed for the Krebs cycle. So the Krebs cycle backs up and then you get pyruvate being converted to lactate rather than entering the Krebs cycle. And so based on the research that I kind of did just about metformin toxicity, and I kind of already alluded to this a little bit, but there's three different ways that you can think about it. So number one is metformin is the primary cause of the lactic acidosis. So the main way you'd see this is if a patient just like overdoses on metformin and they end up with a lactic acidosis and they really don't have any signs of like being septic, not perfusing well, no other toxins or anything that could explain it. Or if you have a patient that has chronic renal failure where it's kind of slowly progressing, they're not being followed really by a primary care doctor, but they're still taking their metformin. So these levels can kind of slowly accumulate over time. You would not expect these patients to present as sick as sick because it's more of like a slow progressive process. But that's another case where you could say, okay, like metformin is most likely the sole cause of this lactic acidosis. The second is probably the more common one. So this is this is when metformin isn't the primary cause. So you have something like severe illness or shock, which then leads to a per, more pronounced acidosis than there otherwise would be. So like a septic patient that now is like pre renal, you know, isn't perfusing their kidneys, isn't clearing well, and then on top of like the lactic acidosis they would get from sepsis, they now have. And even more pronounced lactic acidosis from the metformin, and then the third is when met, their patients on metformin, but they don't really think it's related to the acidosis because they check the metformin levels and they're normal. In real life, metformin levels take like a while to come back; it's a couple of days. So this isn't a diagnosis that will be like super satisfying to make in the ED, where you can like just check it and you know and get it back and it's fine and you never this was what it is. Maybe someday it'll be like that, but yeah, in real life it does. At least I think that. County takes a couple days to come back. So, this is the diagnosis they kind of made almost retrospectively as they're like working him up for all other causes of lactic acidosis and then dialyzing him or dialyzing him and treating him for, you know, everything else that's going on. So, anything else to add, Nick?
0: No, I would say, just singly, like, you know, we, I I thought it was this like full medical mystery thing where they like couldn't figure it out or whatever. Really, the doctors there, so supposedly from my understanding, they knew right away, or at least this was like, I mean, there's, oh, it's the metformin because of the severity of lactic acidosis that they're seeing. And and I guess they kind of just put two and two together like way, way, way faster than I ever would have been able to. In fact, I really learned about this here. And then also the, the patient got admitted. Another thing on the differential was mesenteric ischemia. I know, Kat, you had mentioned that. So because of the abdominal pain, severity of it, the lactate of 19, they got the CT. Even though it was relatively normal, they still consulted general surgery. They talked with radiology. They tried to figure out, you know, is there some, something in the gut that's causing this, which would kind of tie it more to the clinical presentation, which we were talking about with all that pain. So they, they didn't really, they didn't really find any evidence of mesenteric ischemia. I think the, the patient was was dialyzed and, and did well. And then, yeah, but interesting case, I think. Hey, Nick, did they check the thiamine le- This yeah. would
4: be one of the cases that I would just say, boy, I really wonder what the thiamine level was, because that would just be another hit to this, you know, this sort of oxidative phosphorylation cycle. And, and I'm, you know, as Megan said, it's, it's, it, 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 it's, seems like we have to, but pinning it all on the, pinning it all on the metformin, is seems to be hard. I I mean, and I would say, I'm sure that this person had some underlying renal insufficiency and, and, and this became sort of this vicious cycle of, of metformin building up, kidney function getting worse, metformin building up. And, and so you were getting all these hits from all. Over the place, but that would just be another place to to, to get a hit. If if he was thiamine deficient, then it there's more to push him down that that sort of lactic that lactic acid production pathway.
0: Yeah. Kat or Hannah, do you guys have any last thoughts? Or I guess how how is it how is it going through this? This is a I think, hey, it's case difficult diagnosis in my opinion. But yeah, any any thoughts?
2: I think two points. That I think I have been sort of ruminating on is yours, where you said they knew right away. Yeah. So I'm wondering like, if, you, if you've seen this once, maybe because of the severity of pain in the diabetic who's taking that form and you're like, it's very top of mind, but it was kind of fun to go through it. And then the other thing I was thinking about is something Dr. Abrams said, relating sore muscles to lactic acid buildup. And then it kind of made me think like, you know, the kidney has musculature and you don't move the kidney the same way you move your muscles. But if, if that muscle pain, when I have a sore muscle was constant, that would be really, really, really uncomfortable. And so I'm kind of just like, you know, putting all the pieces together. I definitely don't think I'll forget it. So we'll definitely know about metformin-induced lactic acidosis when, you know, maybe they come waltzing onto the floor one day.
3: What do you think, Cap? Yeah, I agree. It's definitely an interesting case. Metformin is something that, you know, almost all of our patients are on. Like everyone gets put on metformin and then we kind of forget that sometimes it can be a pretty... Dangerous drug. We were just talking this week about vitamin B twelve deficiency and metformin too, and then how that gets a little tricky when people start having peripheral neuropathy, whether you've caused it from the metformin or they're causing it from the diabetes. So it's it's a it's a good drug, and I think we put a lot of people on it for good reasons, but definitely something to keep in the back of your mind that it definitely has its its drawbacks. That's right. Really, when I look at B twelve, I always forget about it, but. <laughs> And I looked up, I just had to Google the incidence of this, of this lactic acidosis metformin. That's, you know, it's about eight to every hundred thousand. So oh, gosh. I, I feel like, you know, maybe towards the end of our careers, you'll probably have seen at least, at least 50,000 patients. So you might've seen it a handful of times at that point. So it's good to keep in mind. I'm curious. Those things where if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it, so... I mean, how
1: often do you see metformin levels? Then a lot of times I think it's easy to write off the lactic acidosis as something else. And most often there is something else contributing to it, but it's hard to take that number and be like, okay, is this really how rare it is?
2: Or are we just not looking for it that often? So. Dr. Abrams, have you seen this in practice?
4: I, yeah, it, it, it's sort of like Nick said, and that is, and I think the ER guys really are keyed into this diagnosis. It's keyed into at least thinking about it. So my guess is, but my guess is if you go into an ICU, you'll see this diagnosis. I don't want to say frequently, but you know, over the space of, of, a couple of, of years, you'll see it a couple of times. Well, we'll be ready.
0: <laughs> Better be. <laughs> okay, so that pretty much wraps everything up. Thank you to everyone for being here. Definitely have a fun 25th episode. For having us. Yeah, especially yeah, to thanks for, for, us. for being on here and we will circle back for our next episode, but otherwise it was it was a great one here. Yeah, great job, you. guys. Great. Thank
1: you. Um, good luck to everyone. I know I think the four of us are probably stressed. I know I am about applications and interview season. So good luck to everyone else that's going through it. I know it can be a stressful time, but also very exciting. So yeah. right. thank you to all of our listeners and we'll see you next time.
4: Thanks again for listening person time and place see you next time